Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, Jeremy said Pastor Bart was preaching and only a few people walked out, so I guess we're off to a pretty good start this morning. It's great to be with you today. Uh, Something you need to know about me before we get started today is that I'm a pretty simple guy. Uh, I don't like complicated things. I don't really enjoy things that are complicated. Uh, For example, I like my steak with salt and pepper and maybe a little garlic powder. I'm surprised that did not get an amen this morning from the crowd. Come on, y'all. I don't need steak sauce on my steak if it tastes good, you know? When I go to Starbucks, I don't order a non-fat, non-dairy, two-pump caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino. I order one black coffee with no cream. So I really like to keep things simple. I don't like to overcomplicate things. Call me minimalist, call me basic, call me whatever you want. That's just what I am and who I am, which is why what I'm about to show you on this screen really kind of confuses me, really makes no sense to me. What you're going to see is a water bottle called the Hydrate Spark. Now, the Hydrate Spark is a water bottle that you can get today for the low cost of $80. It tracks your water intake throughout the day. You can connect this water bottle to your favorite fitness tracker or your phone through Bluetooth. The Hydrate Spark has a GPS inside of it, so if you lose your water bottle, you can track it on a map and know exactly where it is and where you left it. It even lights up when you're thirsty just so that you know when it's time to take a drink of water. Now, if you're someone like me this morning, hopefully you're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking. How did we overcomplicate something as simple as the water bottle? I mean, if only God gave us some way to know we're thirsty and when we need to get a drink of water, right? Do I really need someone to tell me when it's time to drink water? Especially not my phone. Here's the thing. We love to make things more complicated than they really should be. And we especially love to do this in our spiritual lives. Take prayer, for example. Prayer should be so simple that anyone can do it. But yet, we seem to add all these rules to prayer so that people even get intimidated when it comes to praying. Or the Christian life, we've complicated, or at least I'll say we've lost clarity on what the Christian life should look like. Ask anyone in this room what the Christian life is all about, and you're going to get a million different answers. And then take discipleship. We've lost clarity on what it looks like to be a disciple. We have books and video series and Bible studies and all the stuff that's meant to help define what a disciple looks like. But I look around and I'm like, I'm not sure we're any closer to understanding what a disciple is actually supposed to be. Now, this sermon has been, this sermon series has been really helpful in helping us know what a disciple is supposed to look like, the way that Jesus defined it. See, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus makes a simple but very profound statement on what it means to be a disciple. He says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's it. Follow me. 
Don, the first week in our series, talked about the leading of the Holy Spirit and that those who follow Christ will follow the Holy Spirit. And how do we know what the Holy Spirit wants for us? We read God's word and the Holy Spirit convicts us and encourages us and challenges us and leads us. Then Jesus says, I will make you. There's the expectation for a disciple of transformation. That as we die to ourselves, as Don said a couple of weeks ago, that as we die to ourselves and follow Christ in faith, he transforms us into people who look just like him. And then we get to fishers of men. Now, this morning, I really want to dive into this statement that Jesus makes. What does he make us? He makes us fishers of men. Now, we leave that part out a lot, don't we? I'm guilty of leaving that part out a lot. As we've defined discipleship, we just tend to leave that part out because we think that that's just for the super Christians this morning. As we've defined discipleship, though, this part doesn't become optional. It's not optional. It's the expectation of every disciple of Jesus. Pastor Don touched on that last week, and we're going to continue to talk about it again What does it look like to be a fisher of men? Why should we do that? How should we do that? And the Bible has actually a lot to say about it. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to spend some time there this morning in defining what a fisher of men really looks like. But before we go there, I just want to share a little bit of a personal story with you. On December 22nd, it'll be four years since I lost my dad to complications that came from a brain tumor surgery that he had. Now, something you need to know about my dad is I didn't know a lot about his work at all. Uh, He was a contract specialist for a company called General Dynamics. And because of his work, he worked with the Defense Department a lot, and uh, he did some government contracts. Because of that, he had to get some kind of top secret clearance for what he did. And so when anyone would ask me, what does your dad do? I really had no clue. So I would just tell people, my dad's a secret agent. And I really think he was a secret agent. I'm still not convinced that he was just a contract specialist. So it really surprised me then at my dad's funeral when all these people from his work would come up to me and say things like this, because I just didn't know a lot about his work at all. Hey, I got to know your dad when we met at work for a weekly Bible study that he was a part of. He was a great man of God. You know, your dad listened to me and prayed for me when I was going through a rough time at work and a rough time at home. Your dad listened and he prayed for me. Your dad used to talk about his family all the time, but even more than that, he would talk about his faith with me and how much it meant to him. Now, I knew my dad shared his faith with his kids. I knew my dad shared his faith at church, but I had no idea the kind of impact my dad had on his work. And I realized in that moment, I want to have that kind of impact too for others around me. I want to have a gospel impact on the people around me where they just don't see me, they see Christ in me. And I want us to see this morning what a life looks like for someone who's determined to be a fisher of men. And so as we wrap up this sermon series, Follow Me, I want us to look at the life of Paul because there's no greater example in, in all of Scripture other than Jesus himself, of someone who was a fisher of men like the Apostle Paul. And I want to give you an example and some context of what's happening here in our passage in 2 Corinthians. 
Paul is heavily invested in the people of Corinth. In fact, he planted the church, the Corinthian church himself. But they started having some problems. And so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as a way to react to some of the problems that the church was having and as a way of correcting them on some of the mistakes that they were making. And obviously that didn't go very well either because Paul had to visit them in person, a visit that he actually calls and refers to as the painful visit. So I'm guessing things didn't really go well with the Corinthian church in that moment. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians as a result of this visit and the idea that the Corinthians just weren't getting things right. In fact, the people of Corinth were just not an easy people to love. They're constantly butting heads with Paul. They're constantly believing lies about him. And they're constantly being taken captive by other teachers. And so after this painful visit, uh, they're still rejecting Paul's teaching. And part of that is because they saw in Paul a person who was poor, who was always in prison, a person who was unimpressive in the way he spoke. Just They just saw this guy and they were actually ashamed of his ministry. And so Paul writes this section in 2 Corinthians as a response to that to defend his ministry saying, look, if you misunderstand my ministry, then you're actually misunderstanding the cross of Jesus. Because Christ was glorified and exalted through suffering and death. And our way to glory is to model Jesus' self-sacrificing, self-giving, and selfless love. And that's what ministry looks like. That's what being a fisher of men looks like. It's not pretty. It's not easy. It's messy. There's conflict, which is why there's so few people who do it. And here's what Paul wants to say to everyone in this room this morning through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm just going to give away the message in the very beginning. I want you to see this statement and I want you to keep this in mind as we read this chapter. Not the whole chapter, don't worry. Here's the statement. The calling of every disciple is motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. We serve on mission as his ambassadors, sharing the message of the gospel with everyone who will hear. Now, that sounds a little complicated to me, so let's just define it in three words, right? That'll make it a little easier to understand. Mission, motivation, mission, and message. Motivation, mission, and message. Let's begin reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5 together. Therefore, Paul says, since we know the fear of the Lord... We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your consciences. So we begin this chapter with a little bit of a surprising motivation for Paul's ministry. He says, the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. That's just a little strange to me. Wait, Paul, what? The fear of the Lord? That's your motivation? And so we need to really understand what does the fear of the Lord look like? What does that look like? In fact, it's actually mentioned in the Bible over 300 times, this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And when you read commentaries and commentators, they're going to quickly point out that the fear of the Lord, to fear God, is to have a reverence and respect for who God is. And that's absolutely true. That's what we should be thinking of as we're reading this passage. But I've noticed we've lost a little a bit of the meaning of the fear of the Lord. Like when we see Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah gets a glimpse of the glory of God and, and his robe is filling the temple. What does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me. 
He bows down before the Lord and says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I'm, I'm a sinner and I live among a people of unclean lips. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua gets a, a picture of the presence of God and he experiences the presence of the Lord and he falls down on his face. And some people might say, well, that's just the Old Testament, Bart. Well, have you read the book of Revelation? John has this vision on the island of Patmos of the Lord. And the Bible says that he falls down and he falls down as if he were dead. He looked dead before the Lord. And now we're getting to kind of what this idea of the fear of the Lord looks like, because this kind of reverence and respect comes from a place in which you realize that something is so much bigger than you. Something is so much greater than you. Something is so much more powerful than you and so much more worthy of all that it can honestly involve a little bit of trembling. But most importantly, it involves a lot of humility and a recognition of how sinful we are as people, but how good God is. So that's what Paul means by the fear of the Lord. Now, what's caused the fear of the Lord in Paul's life? Look just a couple of verses before this passage. Look at verse 9. Paul says, and he's talking about being uh, at home here on earth or away with the Lord. And here's what Paul says. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul's healthy fear of the Lord comes from knowing that one day he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You are going to stand one day as, with Christ as your judge. And listen, praise God that for the believer, we will never endure the anger toward our sin that God intended because of what Christ did for us on the cross. He will look at us and because of Christ's work on the cross, he'll say, forgiven, your debt has been paid you know, he will look at us as if he looks at his perfect son. Praise God for his grace this morning that will never endure the judgment seat of Christ towards our sin because of what Jesus did for us. That's good news this morning. But although we'll never endure the anger of God for our sin, one day, the Bible tells us, our works will be tested. Our works will be tested, and the things that we did that matter for eternity will will stand the test of fire, and then the rest of our empty works will be revealed for what they are, which is just useless and empty. In other words, we'll have this great awareness and accountability of what we did here on earth with the resources and the time that we've given, and we're going to face reality in the moment of what mattered for God's kingdom and what didn't. And what is eternal? What matters that we invest in? God, God's word, people, like those things are eternal. Those things are what's going to matter. And we're going to have an awareness of this. And Paul, he feels the weight of this in verse nine. And so he says, look, knowing the fear of the Lord, what does he say? I make it my aim then to please Christ, to please him. That's our goal as a disciple. Now, don't misunderstand this. We don't make it our aim to please Christ because we feel like we have to earn God's favor by doing good things. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. 
The gospel is not about what I've done, but what Christ did for me. So this is not a guilt trip this morning to try to convince us all to share Christ with others. No, Paul just says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the responsibility of being a steward of what God has given me, I want to please him. I want to please him. I want to make it my aim to please him with everything that God has given me. And this is where we start to realize the beauty of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19.23 says, whoever has the fear of the Lord can rest satisfied. Why? Why is it that when we fear the Lord, we don't have to be afraid of anything else? Well, when your ultimate aim is to please Christ, you don't have to be a people pleaser. You don't have to be a people pleaser. You can live with courage and boldness in this world. What we should be fearful of is standing before the Lord and saying, I didn't do what you called me to do with what you've given me. And so that's Paul's motivation in this passage. His first motive is the fear of the Lord. And he wraps all this up by saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, I love this, we persuade other people. We persuade others. This, is, this word is in a present active tense, which you could kind of translate this like, I'm always persuading. We're always persuading other people. It's it's constant. And so you can see now this passion in this heart that Paul has that we see in this passage, which is why Paul was willing to suffer in prison, which is why Paul was willing to speak the gospel with boldness, to love people who were difficult to love, to persevere in persuading others, talking about uh, Jesus with other people. And I want my life to look like that too. I want my life to have that kind of boldness, that kind of freedom from fear of anything else but the Lord. So the fear of the Lord first motivates Paul, but then what I want you to see in this passage is not just fear that's Paul's motivation. Love is also Paul's motivation, the love of Christ. Paul's ministry was motivated by the love of Christ. Now, love is a very powerful motivator. I spent a little time in college uh, I spent six weeks on a mission trip in Egypt, which is the longest I've ever been away from my family. And so while I was in college, my parents gave me a calling card because back then, I'm not going to tell you how long ago, back then you had to have a calling card to call people long distance or to make international phone calls. So my parents said, here, take this calling card with you and call home and check in, which I did an entire amount of one time, the entire trip, uh, the entire time that I was there. Which is why my parents were really surprised when they got the calling card bill and there was $300 that was on it. Why is that? Because I was calling my girlfriend every single day to check in on her and see how she was doing, which I'm happy to say that she is now my wife. So I think my parents have forgiven me from that. But you can see how much love motivates us toward action. Paul says the same thing in verse 14. Look at what he says. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us why? Because we've reached this conclusion that one died for all, being Christ, and therefore all have died. So Paul uses this phrase, the love of Christ, not to describe his internal feelings toward God. Like, I think we sometimes think, and I think, I have to muster up in my own strength enough love for God, and then one day maybe I'll serve him with passion. That's not how it works, actually, because I don't think I can muster up enough love for God on my own and in my own strength. No, Paul is talking about the extent of Christ's love for him. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. And Paul speaks of this love of Christ and, and understanding the extent of Christ's love as a controlling force in his life. 
In other words, you could probably translate that more bluntly where Paul would say, the love of Christ gives me no choice. When I think about Christ's work on the cross, all that he's done for me, that he took the punishment that I deserve and he died in my place, it gives me and it gave Paul no other choice but to live differently. The love of Christ on the cross gives me no choice but to love others. The love of Christ on the cross and when I understand it gives me no choice but to forgive people when they wronged me. The love of Christ gives me no choice but to serve others and take the low seat and be humbled in who I am. The love of Christ gives me no choice but to show grace to people when they failed. It gives me no choice but to hate sin and run away from it in my life. The love of Christ gives me no choice but to worship him and give him my life. The problem with the people that Paul was writing to, and and my problem as well, is sometimes they knew the love of Christ. They understood the sacrifice that Christ made, but it didn't shape their lives. They were aware of his death on their behalf, but they weren't living as a result of that. They weren't rightly moved to live on his behalf. For the disciple of Jesus, the love of Christ propels us forward to a brand new way of living. Paul says in verse 15, and he died for all, listen to this, so that who live, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This compelling love of God found in Christ had completely rewired Paul's heart so that his what about me had now vanished and he had been now freed up to live for Christ and to live for someone other than himself. How can we accomplish anything for Christ? How can we be a disciple that makes other disciples if all we dwell on is what about me? Who's giving me what I deserve? What about, who's thinking about me? Who's acknowledging my worth? Who's who's giving me my comfort? What about me? What about me? What about me? A life devoted to making disciples, a life poured out to others begins when our what what about me ends. See, both the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord leads to one all-encompassing passion for Paul. He's been freed to live to please Christ, and he's been freed to live for others. And that's the calling of every disciple. Again, going back to our statement, Motivated by the fear of the Lord and love and the love of Christ, we serve on mission as his ambassadors, sharing the message of the gospel to everyone who will hear. Everyone in this room has been given a mission and a message. Not just the pastors, not just those who feel called to the mission field, every believer sitting here today. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, He's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
Why does the Lord leave us here on earth in all of our imperfections and all of the suffering and all of the difficulty? The answer is because there's one thing that we do on earth that we will not do in heaven, and that's to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it. That's why the church is in the world. That's why we're in the world. That is our mission. And here's how Paul describes it. He describes it as a ministry and a mission of reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation happens when there are two parties who are at odds with one another and incapable of relationship. And to reconcile means to do away with that enmity and to be restored into relationship. And notice what Paul says. It starts with God's initiative. He says, everything is from God. Everything is from God. He's behind it all. You were lost. You were apart from him. You were separated from him. But he took the initiative to send Christ to reconcile us to himself. See, we, we do things the other way around. Well, you know, if they want to make it right, they'll come to me. And then maybe we can talk and work things out. That's often our response, but aren't you glad that God's not like that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't do that, though? God initiates. God moves first. He pursues, and we're meant to be a reflection of that initiation, that pursuit. We're meant to reflect that in the way we live and in our mission. So we don't wake up and one day think our neighbors are going to wake up and go, oh, Today's Sunday. You know what? Let's get up and let's go to church this morning. We don't wait for them to do that. We initiate, we pursue friendship. We do the work to pursue people and then share Christ with them. We don't wait for someone else. We initiate just like God initiated with us. In this passage, God or Paul also uses the term ambassador to describe our mission. And, and Pastor Don talked about that a little bit last week saying, uh, an ambassador is someone who's been given authority, authority. They speak authoritatively for someone. An ambassador is sent to a foreign land, and there's someone who represents either their king or country. An ambassador doesn't have a message of their own. They speak the message that was given to them. An ambassador doesn't really have a plan on their own. They follow the plan of someone who sent them. An ambassador's role is to reflect, again, someone who sent them in both action and speech. And your job is to faithfully represent Christ and the message of the gospel to the world around you. But wow, that is a big job description. What I like to say is that every moment in your life is a gospel moment. Every moment is a gospel moment, an opportunity to put the gospel on display. Maybe in your marriage and the way that you speak and forgive and love your spouse, that is meant to be a reflection of the gospel. Maybe your workplace is meant to be a reflection of the gospel in the way you treat others at work. Maybe it's school that God's called you uh, to use those gospel moments. Maybe it's with your kids, that first place that God has called you to, to make disciples. But every moment you have is a gospel moment. Because for an ambassador, the reputation of their country rests in the ambassador's hands. For good or for bad, their country is judged by the words and actions of the ambassador. And if our first mission field is our home, I was just thinking about this this week, 
If every word and every action communicates a message in our house, are we communicating the message of the gospel? Are we communicating the message of the gospel in the way we live, in the way we speak, and what we talk about, and what we do? So if we've been given the mission of being an ambassador, as Christ's ambassadors, we carry this message with us. We don't just have a mission, we have an actual message to speak. Ambassadors are selected you know, partially on their ability to communicate with a balance of truth and tact and dignity and grace. And so ambassadors for Christ should show those same characteristics in speaking this gospel message because God has entrusted us with the message of the gospel, not angels, not other creatures. We are plan A for the world in communicating God's message and his word. So we must speak it. We must be willing to say it out loud. We have to share it. Now, what is the message that we communicate? Well, I love the simplicity of Paul in verse 21. Look at the message of the gospel. He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin committed by every person who has ever believed, though Jesus committed no sins. God put all the punishment for all the sins of all those who believe on him and poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. But here's the miracle of the gospel. When we admit our sinfulness, when we trust this great sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, and when we follow him in faith, we are given the very righteousness of Christ. When God sees us, he does not see our sinful imperfections. He sees Christ's perfection. And that's great news this morning. Sometimes we think the gospel somehow is bad news that we're sharing with others. But as I think about people who are just trying their best to somehow work their way to God, but just live in constant shame and guilt, because I was there too, where it's like nothing I could ever do could measure up to you know who God is. How do I live in this? The message of the gospel is good news to those people that it's not about what you did, it's about what Christ did on the cross. That is good news this morning. Good news that we're called to share to other people as Christ ambassadors. And some of you, you might need to hear that this morning. Maybe you've never come to faith in Christ and you're just like I was when you're trying to work your way to God, but you know you're gonna fail time and time again and you're just left with guilt and shame and you don't know what to do with it. The good news of the gospel for you this morning is that Christ died for you and that you can live a new life for him in faith. You can be forgiven, your debt can be paid. And we share this message every single week in this worship service in hopes that someone will respond in faith and come to Christ. And if that's you this morning, we'd love to talk to you this week. There's a connect card right in front of your seat. Fill that out, put it in the offering basket uh, just right after this message. We would love to connect with you and walk you through what that looks like this week. But if you're already a disciple of Jesus, we need to think about your next step this morning. Your next step is to invest your life into others. Making disciples, again, is not an optional thing for the follower of Jesus. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you this amazing biblical scholar, although that's awesome. The end goal of every disciple is to make other disciples. But here's what I know. We've convinced ourselves that we're just not equipped, that we're just not prepared, that we're just not capable. We've convinced ourselves that that's just for the super Christians 
in the room this morning. But Jesus helps us in the way he refers to us as fishers of men. Because how did you learn to fish? I learned to fish from my grandfather growing up. And here's what he did. He didn't say, all right, Bart, you're going to have to attend three years of fishing school in order to like start this out. And maybe one day you'll get there, Bart, where you can be like me and you can catch a fish. No, he said, look, here's a few things that you need to know. Here's how you cast the, the line out. Here's how you bait your hook. And then you just pull and reel in and you're all good. And what did I do? I started to like learn what that looked like. I threw it out. I pulled it back. I learned what that looked like just by doing it. We need to take an action step this morning. Let's keep it simple. Let's not complicate things. What is an action step for you this morning to live a life that's devoted to making other disciples? Maybe that's just getting together with a friend this week for coffee and just saying, how can I pray for you? You know, I'm trying to make it a point to pray for people every week. How can I pray for you this week? You know, have some coffee, get to know each other, but ask that question. Be intentional. Maybe it looks like an intentional prayer time with your kids this week where you just take some time and say, look, prayer is important to our family. You know, I'm a follower of Christ and we need to talk to him. Let's come together and let's pray together as a family or maybe read God's word and do a family devotion. Maybe it means asking someone at work, how can I pray for you? Somebody you've been building a relationship and friendship with. Maybe it's sharing the gospel, actually speaking the good news to someone who you've already been talking to about the Lord. I was terrified of sharing Christ with a friend of mine in college. I remember like shaking in my boots, like going, okay, God, I know, I know you want me to ask him about his relationship with the Lord, but I'm just too afraid. And I remember coming to him and saying, you know, I'd be a terrible friend if I didn't ask you like about your relationship with God. You know, you've been coming to Bible study and it's been great to get to know you and I'd be a terrible friend. He was like, Man, I've been waiting on this forever. I, I came to Christ two weeks ago and I wanted to share it with you. Like, we just get so afraid, but maybe it just means taking that step to, to share the gospel and walk through that, what that looks like with someone else. Or maybe it's just inviting someone to your life group or to church to hear the message. Let's not complicate it. Let's keep it simple today. Let's respond in some way. Motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, Live a life on mission, sharing the message of the gospel to anyone who will hear it. And let me pray for you in that process.